You are tuned to 233 ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, channel 233. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Kina. Today, Dr. Patricia Santi will join me. Dr. Santi is a practicing psychiatrist in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She's a former NASA flight surgeon and was the flight surgeon for the Challenger crew. Dr. Santi also writes for her personal website, drsanity.blogspot.com. In the previous segment, we were introduced to Dr. Santi and how she began her work as a NASA flight surgeon. We left our discussion about Krista McAuliffe, the teacher astronaut. On the morning of the Challenger launch, you write on your website, drsanity.blogspot.com, it was cold that morning. You thought they might potentially delay or scrub the mission. Tell us about what happened at the time when Challenger actually did launch. Well, let me give you a bit of, bit of background about that. We had had several launch scrubs for 51L, and I had been at the Cape a couple of times and, uh, you know, for several days before we finally got to this point. In fact, the night before the launch, Dan Rather had had on the CBS Evening News a recitation of every single launch scrub in NASA's history and use it as an example of how ineffective and unproductive and unreliable uh, NASA was. And so there was a, I think there was a lot of pressure from that. There was also the pressure of the fact that President Reagan was going to include the Challenger launch and the first teacher in space into his um, State of the Union address, which was going to be that night. So there was a lot of pressure going in. I woke up that morning, and it was like 18 degrees. And if you have ever been in Cocoa Beach, you know that that's really unusual, very cold. I had not even brought a sweater with me. Usually going to Florida was warm, pretty warm, even in January. Uh, I drove in to, the, um, to launch control that morning, shivering because it was so cold, and thinking to myself, this is really too cold. Probably we're going to scrub again today, in spite of the fact that the agency really wants to launch just today on time. So we got into launch control, and we're going through the pre-launch procedures in the launch mission control there. And it's really clear that there's a, they're having a lot of problems with the orbiter because there's ice on it. So they had to go and have several technicians go out and check it over, et cetera. And again, it, the, the mood in launch control was pretty lighthearted. I think most people expected that we were going to scrub because, you know, there was visible ice on the orbiter that morning. So it was kind of surprising when um, we got a okay to go through the launch countdown. And by the end of the check around from the launch director, everyone was a go for launch. Um, I guess they had met, we all thought, well, they must have met with all the Morton Thiokol and other people about, you know, the, uh, the SRBs. And I'm going to interrupt you there. SRB is solid rocket booster. Right, the solid rocket boosters. So everybody must think it's okay to launch. And, you know, we kind of all of us people who worked in launch control, even the flight surgeon, put an absolute kind of trust in the different areas that they would not say it was okay to launch unless they really thought it was okay to launch. So, um, and I was listening to the chatter inside the orbiter from the crew, one of the things the flight surgeon gets to do there in launch control, and they were real happy. Oh, good, we're going to get to launch. So, 
the countdown went, uh, right at the time of launch, as soon as they get down, you know, 10, 9, 8, as soon as they get down to zero, the shuttle engines start, and then the SRBs take off, and it's just it, almost instantaneous, the liftoff. It's very quick. And as soon as it lifts off the pad, control for the orbiter shifts to mission control in Houston. So launch control truly is only for launches. And pretty much everybody at that time, you know, turns around and looks out the back window where you can see the orbiter going up. So we're many of us who whose jobs are now done because it's been transferred over to uh, Mission Control in Houston are staring out the window when we see this kind of strange cloud develop. And it took a, a minute for everyone to realize, gosh, something terrible has happened. And uh, one of the jobs the flight surgeon has at that point in time is, and the reason we're in launch control is we are in charge of the emergency response, the medical emergency response to what's called an RTLS, and a, re- a return to launch site if a mission is aborted below a certain altitude. The orbiter will come around and land right back there at Florida. So, you know, um, I'm looking at this big cloud, and, and it looks very unusual, and I'm thinking, okay, where's the orbiter? Where's the orbiter? And I'm waiting for the orbiter to come out of this cloud to start a, a return to launch site. And then all of a sudden I hear Dick Covey, who is the Capcom and another astronaut who's in mission control, say there's no downlink. And it was at that moment when he said those words that I, I mean, my heart just clenched. I just thought, oh, my God, it's gone. They're gone. It came to me like all of a sudden that the orbiter had been lost in that, in that explosion. And, you know, it was just like it just washed over me the knowledge that the crew were dead. And, I, I mean, I just stood there totally stunned that this had happened. And my first thought at that point in time was, I've got to get to the families because, of course, they are my other patients. And they were immediately whisked away to crew quarters, which is several miles away from... Um, about 10 miles away, I guess it is, from launch control uh, in the main Kennedy Center, uh, Kennedy Space Center complex. That's where the crew lives in the time period that goes up to the launch. And um, the problem was that the launch director immediately called for a lockdown because he wanted everything to be historically preserved in order for us to be able to figure out what went on. So it was you know, it was immediate. Okay, everyone, back to your back to your controls. Uh, let's see what's going on. Let's capture all the data that we have right now, et cetera. So they immediately went into a business mode. There was no time to mourn, no time to do anything. But there's nothing for me to do at this point in time because I can't do an RTLS and there's no other data that we have that needed to be captured. So I went to the the launch director, and said, I need to get to the families. And he allowed me to leave the locked room. I got into my car, uh, which was parked just outside of launch control, and I tried to make my way back to the crew quarters, except that the highway was totally packed with cars of people who had stopped to watch the launch. 
uh, and who were now, you know, standing, staring at the cloud that remained in the sky. And I couldn't get my car through, so I had to ride on the median. I still remember this, riding like a, a, a crazy person on the median to get past all of these people who were watching this horrible tragedy. And I don't know, about 20 minutes later, I made it to crew quarters and got inside to discover that not only were the immediate family members of the crew there, but their extent, some of their extended family that had gone to watch the launch had been brought there, and it was a scene of mass hysteria. You know, this is, this is really something, I mean, for a psychiatrist to be <laughs> given an opportunity to see mass hysteria, there were literally people running around screaming and yelling, children uh, completely unsupervised, spouses coming up to me saying, they're alive, aren't they? Couldn't they have bailed out? Are they going to pick them up in the ocean? I mean, it was, I was just appalled at how little the families really understood about what had actually just happened. In many of their minds, they were waiting for their loved ones to be rescued. And yet I knew, as someone who'd gone through all the training procedures, there was no, there was no way to rescue them. Uh, there's no way, there was, at that time, there was no way for any of the crew under any circumstances to be able to exit the orbiter uh, except after it landed. So, there, you know, they couldn't have jumped out, parachuted out, or been ejected out like you would have in a jet or something like that. So it was, it was extremely chaotic, and it was made worse by the fact that uh, the NASA management in charge of this basically completely isolated us. Once I was in there, we were not allowed out. And not only that, but the number of phone calls and things were c- completely discouraged. There were no TVs. There were no radios. Nobody knew what was going on, and this only fueled kind of the mass hysteria. I had to beg for them to let in someone to help me, and they finally allowed a nurse from the Kennedy Space Center to come in to help me deal with some of the issues that were going on um, uh, and help me medicate some of the people who were really out of control. And there was one person who actually needed to be hospitalized. I was told by NASA management at that time that uh, there was no way they were going to allow someone to be hospitalized. Why was that? NASA at that time was in damage control mode, okay? And the main concern was bad publicity for NASA. I'm sure that wasn't the only concern, um, but that was a big concern at that immediate point in time when nobody really knew what happened. And there was a real fear, even on the part of the families, that you know something horrible could happen to NASA because this tragedy had happened. And, you know, this goes back to my original point, which is that even NASA didn't appreciate how dangerous spaceflight was. <laughs> and they had, they had conned the government and the people of this country into thinking that spaceflight was this easy thing to do, that accidents don't happen and are impossible. I mean, if you go to the military and you look at the history of uh, most of the high-performance jets and everything, People are constantly being lost in jet crashes as new planes came out, etc. That's part of what you do. You risk your life to test these new kinds of vehicles out. And the shuttle was a new vehicle, and it was still being tested out, and it was still very dangerous. 
but I have to say, I think that it was at that point that I realized that my potential uh, career as an astronaut, as a future astronaut, was ended because I basically stood up uh, to NASA management at that point and said, I'm not asking your permission to hospitalize this person. I'm a physician. I will do what I think is necessary, and I did it. Um, and the individual was hospitalized and uh, did very well and was able to leave the next day. But the point was that I don't think NASA management at that point in time was very happy that that needed to be done. I've been speaking with Dr. Pat Santee and her experience as a NASA flight surgeon. I want to thank her for sharing what's clearly a very difficult memory of the Challenger mission. Thank you, Dr. Santee. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM Channel 233, and I'm your host, Dr. Markina.